Hello, and welcome to episode three of the LCLC podcast. In this episode, my guest is noted E.E. Cummings scholar Jillian Wang Tiller, a professor of English at the University of Virginia Wise. At the time of our conversation, Dr. Wang Tiller was completing her book, Transforming Modernism, The Visual Poetics of E.E. Cummings, for University Press of Florida. She readily agreed to do the podcast because, like me, she wants to sustain the remarkable conversation about Cummings that has sprung up thanks to the convening year after year of the Cummings panels at the LCLC. Cummings remains an immensely popular, even a beloved poet, thanks in no small measure to the members of the E.E. Cummings Society. Because of their tireless work, E.E. Cummings sightings are now quite common in our digital age. Indeed, I feel comfortable announcing that the Cummings line, I carry your heart with me, I carry it in my heart, may be the anthem of our Etsy COVID American meme moment. From Hannah and her sisters to Netflix serial killer series, You, Cummings consistently serves as a touchstone to signal an attitude of one who's open to and searching for a kind of genuine post-tragic joy and the stabilization of that vision of Cummings owes much to Wang Tiller's shaping efforts. I began our conversation by asking Jillian the first question I'd like to ask all my guests. Just how did you first come to hear of the LCLC? Um, it was uh, uh, in my graduate school period um, at Notre Dame. Everybody was uh, talking about this prestigious uh, 20th century conference on literature and culture. So I uh, went to Notre Dame in 1990, 1991. So that's where everybody went. So I just, uh, it wasn't my dream to make it, make the cut to attend this conference. So it's in the 19, it was in the 1990s. Mm-hmm. And so that was before your involvement in the E.E. E. Cummings Society. That's right. Um, my first uh, uh, conference uh, that I attended at the Louisville was uh, 1999. And then uh, that was about the time I was about to finish my dissertation. And then um, why don't you go and then uh, write Louisville? Some of my friends would say, and I say, okay. So I wrote uh, a proposal and uh, that was my first paper on Cummings as well. In 1998, it was accepted. It was hilarious because everybody said it was blind submissions. It was really challenging. So to make the cut is a great honor. So that was everybody's dream to make it to Louisville. Great. Well, congratulations on making the cut. Do you remember (laughs) what it was like to be here at Louisville in 98 and give your first uh, paper at the conference? Um, It was at 98. I sent a the proposal and it was accepted. So my first one was in 1999. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because uh, I remembered that I was overwhelmed by the size and the uh, presenters at the conference. And I saw lots of big names and keynote speakers that you admired and they were really all be so close you know, to us. So for me, that was an amazing experience. 
um, the best conference ever that I uh, attended at that point. Um, then it really lived up to its reputation and uh, uh, it's it's a fan. So that was my experience and quite a few Notre Dame classmates were there as well. So they uh, chair the sessions and then so it's like, a, hey, it's just I'll go there. So it's almost like a second home to uh, graduate students. Uh, to be able to uh, get together in Louisville. So at the time, I was not a faculty member, so we just look at a distance and suddenly feels very close to us. So that was an amazing experience, yes. And the topics were excellent. Thanks for sharing that with us. So how did you end up becoming a specialist in Cummings and then becoming uh, an important, a key member of the society? Well, that's really a good question. I, maybe I should say thanks to Louisville again. Um, I just first tried to uh, participate with my different chapters on my dissertation, and then was not really uh, moving toward Cummings per se because I was interested in women's studies as well. So I had a paper on Vincent Millay, and I also had papers on a black writers. And that would be my first three years. And then I went into Asian American writers as well. And I thought that could help me develop the book into two areas. And then I somehow got into the Cummings Society through my director, uh, Professor Jackie Brogan, and she actually organized the American uh, Literature Society's uh, presentations, American Writers, Society of American Writers presentation at AOA. So she started me um, going to that conference. Then I discovered, oh, actually, they had a EE Cummings Society. And then my focus would be many on EE Cummings, but also two areas. So then I entered them into the society and then uh, and then I realized nobody seemed to go to Louisville. So I said, I really love Louisville. Have you ever thought about uh, taking the society from LA to Louisville? And then they say, well, good idea. You would, if you would like to try, and then we will all go. So that's the incentive that I uh, carry on because uh, of my experience, very rewarding experience with the Louisville Conference for the first five years. So, 2005, and then I sent this proposal to represent our society. It was accepted. 2006, and we have people now coming to Louisville. And then I became the person who studies e-commerce from that time on. It, become, it became my focus, the only focus for quite a while. And so I would say my experience at Louisville, then an opportunity to get to know the e-commerce society and with all these wonderful connections, then we are now have this uh, um, opportunity to 
be almost like uh, our second home there again after graduate school. Great. Thanks for recounting that. I was really looking forward to talking to you because I ended up when I was a graduate student, I thought I was going to uh, focus on Romanticism forward, and I ended up focusing on Romanticism backward, largely uh, because of the the fit that I had with certain professors who uh, I, I seemed to gel with, and so it just went back, and I ended up working with uh, Stanley Fish was my dissertation Ooh. director, and uh, and he actually, I believe, came in 2006 and will be uh, a guest on the podcast soon after after you. But I had uh, read The Enormous Room when I was an undergraduate and had really fallen in love with Cummings. Was there some experience for you that made you fall in love with Cummings? Oh, yes. I would have, you know, uh, pick up uh, your thread as uh, Professor Stanley Fish. Uh, he came to UVA Wise to give uh, uh, a big talk that uh, it was a, a very special uh, speaker um, arrangement. And then actually Professor Fish, we took him to our local vineyard and we actually had a very good gathering with uh, with him. So I think that it's fantastic to hear him talk. So I will look forward to that podcast. Um, about the, you know, refocus. Yeah, I share your experience myself. Norman Friedman in our society was just a great leader. He was almost the father figure for every scholar into Cummings. So I think that they were just good hands, that it's one incentive for people who want to stay in this field and love Cummings because of the encouragement of some great mentors you know, there. Uh, he published my first article on Cummings, so that definitely uh, was uh, another crucial incentive to stay on this track. And personally, Cummings, um, he, he's an extraordinary, extraordinary uh, poet and, and painter and writer that he attracted me so much because I could never figure him out. Um, so I think a good uh, writer, you know, can allow us to run panels year in, year out in two different venues, AOA and uh, Louisville, it, said, it speaks a lot about uh, Cummings himself. He has a great language ability. He's so well read, but he is so um, modest in the way how he presents his knowledge. So unlike Elliot and Ezra Pound, they would really go back all the way to a uh, classical period and then create, uh, you know, a new sense of modernism through classical, you know, uh, reference in juxtaposed with modern times. And Cummings seems to distill all of this uh, and then into such a kind of uh, innocent way of uh, phrasing his lines. But then if you go deeper, um, the textuality, the form, and, and then um, the embedded illusion, it is so astounding that 
I never feel I really completely completely understand him. Um, especially his experimental way of dancing his language. It's just mesmerizing. So I guess that's why all over the world, the scholars were fascinated by him. And then that gives us uh, a great opportunity to get together and then to study him from multiple directions. So I guess the uh, enormous room attracted me as well. Um, I went there uh, in La Fate Marseille. I visited the, the enormous room. I followed where he went as, as much as I could. So um, he, he, I think he uh, is an overlooked American voice. And then we have tried a lot of ways to bring him to uh, the academic field that so many people love him. So he was somehow perceived as a um, minor American voice in modern literature, but um, it depends how our criteria are to assess the value the importance of a great writer. But he will, as you uh, pointed out in your question, that it looks like he's going to continue to last. Um, it's just that accessibility and also incredible depths that it's just so hard to describe. So I, I guess that's why it attracted me. It's just he fits everybody's category. I was doing some preparation last night to get ready for this conversation and in spending some time on YouTube, I was surprised that there's very little uh, footage. In fact, I couldn't find any footage of Cummings. There is an audio recording of a 92nd Street Y uh, poetry reading that he gave, I believe, in 1948, if I recall. Um, and other than that, I struck out that here's a guy who died in 1962. Yes. And we've got virtually nothing at least easily accessible, or am I wrong? Um, they're, they're having a lot of recordings. I'm not sure they put on YouTube because um, the copyright things, especially Kempton, Kempton recordings has a, um, a lot of uh, uh, Cummings' readings, uh, um, especially um, after he never really, you know, accept a regular job. So he would definitely need income because he's such a practitioner of individualism and independence. And then he would have to go out and read a lot. And then so uh, there were a lot of recordings, but for some of the um, rights of property reasons, they were not just allow it to release to the public. But if you search for Kemp Kempton uh, recordings, the official um, channels for access to his recordings, they are available. Um, there was supposed to be a film um, produced on their life, a very short one, and I could not find it either. And I went to Houghton Library and to search, and nobody really could relocate it. But they said it was supposed to be a film. 
So, yeah, um, your point is, is, you know, it's well taken. And you are going to be uh, in attendance in the for the 2022 conference coming up. And I was looking over that panel and you're presenting. Can you give us a little uh, a little taste of what you're going to be talking about in February 2022? <laughs> okay. All right. That's not part of the original question. Um, yeah, it has been a little bit challenging after the pandemic to um, get the uh, new voices to submit their proposals. And then so um, if that happened, I always just step in and then continue my own uh, line of thought and then uh, to uh, work on my monograph uh, uh, in process. And then what I'm going to talk about is that after last panel that we uh, switched our focus to eco-criticism and it was a really a rewarding experience because not the session uh, was successful, but I got this uh, publisher's attention. They would like to uh, have a book out on that topic. And so um, I think, well, there might be that I should continue. And then one of the things that this is why Cummings was so profound is that you have to really read without uh, any kind of uh, discouragement and go deep into uh, his visual poetics, which means that how do we see this world? And then um, he emphasizes that you look at his poetry, you got to look, it's not just to see, you look, and when you look, and then you begin to grow. This is a one uh, line in one of his sonnets, and so a lot of uh, uh, previous comics critics would uh, say he just say the same thing, especially negative criticism from R. P. Blackmore, but they want more profound allusions and classical extensions to the knowledge to the world, but they don't think of one simple thing, a tangible or something just by that immediate contact, it opens up the whole universe. That that just one word flower can do. But for comics, no, it can. So then he encouraged a new way of seeing, not like what modernism simply, you know, something like a Picasso. And then so, Everything is distorted and you put them back again. He did that. He has distorted vision. But then he wants you to see that it's also a mirror. So seeing is to look and then you grow. This growth is not about the poet. It's about the reader. So it's this interaction that he, the uh view of seeing that carries a lot of profound message that we need to rethink what he's trying to say and to do. But this word is like his curse or albacross that comes doesn't grow. But he says, look, you will grow. So I think this is a very unique phenomenon in our modern culture. We tend to look and gaze and then never really see it's just you are looking at yourself. We are looking at ourselves. So I'm thinking 
that this phenomenon fits the whole concept concept of eco-criticism, which means that seeing is interperceiving. It is interpenetrating process going on. And ultimately what we do, we see other people, it's really what we are ourselves are doing. And then the poem is only a medium toward that, toward the reflection back to ourselves. So it's not about the poet. It's about what we have this understanding what we are looking at and then then how the the lines looking back at us then that moment of contact we all grow so i consider that it's an eco phenomenological process and i joined both series about this environmental concern the interconnectedness with everything but also ultimately we are really need to grow ourselves through coming this, you know, particular way of perceiving things. So, um, and I came to this understanding uh, beginning in 2020 uh, when Louisville, you know, they were successful to offer this conference before we all, you know, encounter, experience right. lockdowns. Yeah. So that's where I'm going with it. It's about the art of perceiving. And I hope that uh, we'll open a little bit as to what poetry really means to us, what comments is trying to communicate with us, you know, it's each other's own input into the poetry and how that comes back to us, that is growth, that where he is going with it. So the whole notion of, you know, um, nobody else but myself, that is ultimate message, which is also, the book that I have been trying to work out and then through the examination of Cummings' reworking of the sonnet tree, which ultimately is the whole notion of love. And then we have to understand, to interact with other people. And then that's where the bridge that we need to always carry on. So that would be my paper. <laughs> Great. And, and well explained, too, for an off-the-cuff answer, you will be here and the Cumming Society will be here and the uh, responses that I'm getting uh, back, even despite the persistence of, of COVID, is, is, uh, is very encouraging. Other Great. societies, yeah, other societies are going to be here, the T.S. Eliot Society, the Virginia Woolf Society, the Durrell Society, and several others. In the past... Is there interaction among the societies and the organizers, or is this a, a bridge, speaking of bridges, that, that maybe we could do some more effort to build? Oh, definitely. I actually have to uh, give uh, out the praise to uh, Michael Webster. Um, he actually is really our leader, our mentor, at the E. Cummings Society after Norman Friedman um, passed on the mental. And then so um, he has participated in different societies. So then when they sh showed up at the Cummings uh, panel that we got to get to know them. Actually, I got to know most people through Michael. And so we always interacted with Elliot Society and um, Will and Harmon, 
um, from uh, a University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, uh, used to be president of Elliott Society. And then it was really interesting about the Louisville Conference and history is that they changed their names. Um, I think I had a, a number down, but I think it's uh, 2007 or 2008, they changed their name to the Louisville Conference. And then I think that uh, Bill brought Elliott Society to Louisville for the first time. And then, so that was the time we started as well. So Michael knows Bill, and then, so I got to know Bill, and then he would always pop up in our panels, and then we would go to his panels. So the interaction between Cummings and Elliot Society actually, um, it's pretty, pretty in, intimate in, in one way. Um, then later on, I really got to know uh, Professor Harmon so well that I brought him and then another uh, well-known poet, Robert Morgan, to our campus to give a talk, read their poetry. And then really, we enjoy each other so much. So Louisville Conference really creates this opportunity for us to bridge academic relationship, but also, you know, um, literary relationship, friendship. So yeah, thanks to the Louisville Conference, we really appreciate appreciated this opportunity. Well, the Elliott Society is hoping to do an, uh, a seminar that will celebrate the wasteland at 100 with the 2022, so in 2022 oh. to 2022. Yeah. And it does seem like Elliot and Cummings kind of need each other, particularly your spin on Cummings is in many ways um, the positive alternative <laughs> to the wasteland. Um, or am I misreading that take on Cummings? No, it's good. Um... That's why, because Michael would go to Elliott Society to give papers, because there's always this, this some connection between Cummings. Well, see, they went all the way back to Harvard, and um, um, personally between Cummings and Elliott, there was a little bit distance, but at the same time, when uh, Cummings entered uh, Harvard in 1911, and Elliott graduated. So they kind of like maybe have one year, they might uh, involve each other on the stage. They they had a theater on the stage, but I think their relationship got closer. Cummings wrote a paper, um, actually uh, an essay on LEA for Schofield Thayer. And Schofield Thayer and LEA, they both were classmates at Harvard, so they're very close. And the... Uh, Schofield, they appreciate Elliot's, uh, you know, classical knowledge and the experimental uh, modern poetry. But Cummings felt like that was really not new enough, didn't feel that was really kind of his view of the philosophy of life, you know, because for Cummings, everything must be alive. However, he was able to find something to say about uh, Elliot as a, in many ways there's something alive and published that essay in the dial in uh, in the early 1920s around the same time. The Enormous Room came out in 1922 
and Elias Wasteland came out in 1922. So they could be conceived, perceived as a world poets, poets, but then he hasn't published his poetry yet. So Elias the Wasteland certainly um, for coming to the equal, you know, um, achievement is in his prose, The Enormous Room. And somehow he uh, has some views about the wasteland. And maybe I, I, for some reason, I think he probably should really appreciate that. But uh, somehow he wasn't able to know how to read it. So uh, it's there's an interesting paper there about Cummings and Elliot, you know, about how to how to appreciate this uh, amazing poem, The Wasteland. So just because of that and other reasons, there's so much you can really work on the connection between Cummings and T.S. Eliot. Um, so, yeah. Are you, are you uh, planning to retire? You mentioned that to me in our email correspondence. Who's, who's going to step up when, when that happens? Well, yeah, that's a good question. Um, we hope that uh, um, the pandemic really makes it difficult. Uh, everybody in in the literary society would realize that because the 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 funding and then for graduate student to travel and then um, other factors, and so it's really uh, we are in a period to find the the people who are now coming out and then to have ability to go to the society to get to know people. So um, I don't, I can answer that question yet. And mm -hmm. um, we, sometimes you can still organize if uh, if that has to come to that. But yeah, we really hope that uh, um, we will have new scholars. That's why we offer this uh, uh, panel uh, call for papers is to find scholars that uh, might be having, um, working on something in modern period, maybe take interest in, in comics, might have a book or something. So they would kind of like uh, carry on. Um, but right now, just this particular year, it's really hard to answer that question for 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 successors. Yeah, right. Do you ever, or maybe this is something we can do going forward, try to recruit or interest new members to join here at the Louisville Conference, where you have lots of grad students and people who may not be society members, but now may be the time to get them. Is there, do you think that that sort of outreach might help solve this problem? Yeah, uh, every effort is, uh, you know, it's worth all the efforts. So, so that's kind of like a tautological, but um, yeah, um, I think, what we would need to do is that um, to get more publications on this writer and uh, Norton has been doing a good job and keep putting you know books out um, to get people interested. 
and also uh, to look into the impact on popular media and to open up possible range. Um, I have to say is that the future direction would be uh, both ways, academic or, you know, open it up to what people like to do to say about it. Um, yeah, we have been thinking about that. What what will be the mission from, you know, this time period and move, how we move forward? I think that would be every society's uh, uh, <laughs> challenge as well, because uh, uh, this year just not a year to forecast the future. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's that, that's uh, that's very prudent comments on your part and well taken. Is there in in my questions to you in advance, I wondered why the contacts that I'm uh, interacting with on the various societies often aren't the uh, professors at flagship institutions and is there some reason behind that? Um, my husband basically is in the same profession, and then uh, he offers some of his insight. He's a medievalist, and he said that uh, there's no reward in it. And then uh, basically, that was not their expectation. They expect to uh, do research and, and uh, put out books, put out articles. And then uh, to organize panels uh, and conferences, and then be a person who leads a society, there's not much reward in it. It's a time-consuming job, and uh, so I took his uh, you know, immediate uh, response from there. But I truly, actually, don't really know. Uh, but I feel. Um, they put, put put out the books and generate some uh, issues for debate. Maybe we can sort of like uh, arguing about that, so we can now organize conference and do something. So I guess both surface uh, uh, needed purposes. So I I I'm not sure why you don't see these kind of big universities and then would uh, come out and then take time because. Uh, Honestly, we cannot thank uh, University of Louisville enough for for putting this year after year now become almost half a century, because we we here run a very small medieval Renaissance conference. It takes a five people committee, just a lot of work, and for uh, two three days, it's a lot of dedication and a lot of time, uh, you know, effort to contribute to the academic field. I think it's very valuable to offer people who have not been there and a footing to enter the academic profession. But uh, it's a lot of support from the academic institution. And then to think this is a good both ways uh, for the academic university themselves. And then for the time that uh, professors have to, you know, sacrifice at the same time. but. The contribution, they, the the seeds they planted, would be much more, you know, rewarded in the long run, uh, for whatever 
what kind of ever effort they put it in, especially we were, was international. Actually, it's very, it's well known all over the world. People, you know, come from everywhere to participate in this uh, conference. No, I, I appreciate that answer. It does seem like we are at a, a, a moment. It's often uh, a joke among professors uh, of English that, you know, we're always in crisis. Um, the job market's always terrible, but but a year like this makes us realize that that's not true and that this year is really different um, and that it has focused us to realize that things are going to change and maybe we can kind of get ahead of that change and steer it better. Um, and the Cummings Society and Cummings, as we're as we're recognizing in this discussion, is perhaps well suited to make the voyage. He's somebody who can survive. Well, thanks for <laughs> thanks for that encouragement. Um, yeah, I that's why I have some faith that um, somebody will come up. And then somebody will carry on because the love for Cummings is natural. Um, it's not because uh, that I have to be um, in this particular society that because that makes me feel I'm so much better. I don't think Cummings will give you any reader that sense of uh, uh, what you, we would say inadequacy because um, it's not easy to read Pound. Uh, so it's a today's uh, uh, confidence usually come from a level of uh, connectedness. So I think Cummings has poems really connected to the general public. Um, if we talks about if we talk about the great divide between the popular and the serious. And then if it's the series I show and then in my study over these many years, it's very serious, uh, you know, conscientious, careful work with the techniques and then with the form. But it's also so welcoming, so cheerful, so delightful that it's not Cummings doesn't have a tragic vision. He has been there and he knows that. And we need much more positive for, you know, feedback. And he offers that. So I feel especially through this pandemic, it's so rewarding to read Cummings because the love of nature, little things, the simple lines, you know, it just carry with you. So I carry, you know, uh, your heart and then I carry it in my heart. It's it's kind of like a, you can just say it and everybody can relate. So um, I think one of the reasons Cummings can survive as the movie you pointed out, Hannah and her sisters, it's only one line there. But then, you know, somewhere I've never traveled the gladly beyond. It's like, I can simply say this line, but it's not easy. So the poet just say it and everybody can relate. So it it's relates to all, um, you know, different levels of readers. Um, that's why I don't know. I think that uh, uh, Alden says that, uh, you know, poetry survives in its own valley. So I think if it's coming, it's very well. But I love, you know, deeper 
um, you know, with a, a lot of uh, illusions, classical things myself too. But so I, I, I think it's like uh, uh, to survive, it's just you got to have for different things for different readers. Um, so I hope comics do survive. Thanks for that. Um, and I think if we can survive in your conference, that'll be good too. <laughs> well, thanks so much for the conversation. My thanks again to Jillian Wang Tiller. And thanks to you for listening. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please take a moment to hit the like button and subscribe. Finally, I hope you will think about joining us at a future LCLC. For information, go to the louisvilleconference.com. Thank you.